Let's open again to the book of 1 Corinthians as we continue in our sermon series through 1 Corinthians. And this morning we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 beginning in verse 18. Specifically 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. If you were here last week, I mentioned that we were going to take two treatments of this passage, a two-part treatment of verses 18 through 25. If you were here last week, perhaps you remember then, we saw, verse 18, that the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The, the truth of Jesus Christ and Him crucified divides. It's folly to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to those who are being saved. We also saw in verse 19 and 20 that this is because God delights in overthrowing the wisdom of the world. It's part of His plan. But we also saw, of course, that the cross delivers. That it pleases God to save the foolishness of preaching Christ and Him crucified. And all of this is critically important to addressing the division and the turmoil that's going on in the Corinthian church. Well, Today we're continuing that theme. And the focus here now shifts to how preaching Christ and Him crucified is a display, a manifestation of the power of God and the wisdom of God at work in this world. And once again, we will find that this message of the cross must be the center of our hearts, the center of our homes, and the center of our churches. 1 Corinthians 1. Let's read the entire passage for context. 18 verses, uh, through, verses 18 through 25. This is God's Word. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen. Let's pray again. Bow with me. Father, we acknowledge that you are all-powerful in all of your work. And your wisdom and your understanding is infinite without limit. And as we contemplate Your power and Your wisdom, Lord, we ask that 
your power and wisdom would be joined with your love for us here this morning. Through the Holy Spirit, you would be at work among us powerfully. And that you would instruct us with the wisdom of your word. And that you would do so through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and this message of the cross. We ask this in his name, your son. Amen. I once heard John MacArthur uh, give some very helpful advice when someone asked him the question, how do I choose a church home? When visiting and looking for a place, a church to join, how do I evaluate the health of a church? Well, well, he acknowledged that there are several important issues that must be considered when we evaluate a church. His answer really focused in on the preaching of the Word of God. He held up, and I think he did this rightly, I think he's right in this, he held up the pulpit ministry as the heartbeat and the center of the local church. And that the health of the church ultimately depends upon the health of the preaching ministry and teaching ministry in the pulpit. But what really struck me in his response is when he said this, and I'm going to paraphrase, he said, listen carefully to the preaching. Pay particular, particular attention to how the pastor handles the Word of God in the pulpit. Why? Because any time a man stands up to preach, or really any time anyone stands up to speak publicly on a particular matter, he's going to say and emphasize that which he believes will have the greatest impact upon his hearers. What the pastor really believes about what people need. What the pastor believes is the best way to bring about that need is going to be evident in what the pastor says. Well, I believe this is particularly important. It's insightful when we consider how the Apostle Paul opens this letter. And haven't we already established that the church in Corinth was a wreck relationally, morally, spiritually. And if you or I were writing this letter, if we were in the shoes of the Apostle Paul, wouldn't we be the same in the sense of like, what can I write? What can we write to help the situation? What do they need to to heal and correct and get them back on the right path? What is going to be most effective toward that end? What is going to be most powerful in bringing about the necessary changes that, are nece- that, 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 are, that, that the church needs? Well, I think as we consider this as well, we can easily pull this into our own context and ask some of the same questions. We're not the church in Corinth, hopefully. But don't we look around at the church, the state of the church in our day, and we, we see just a litany of issues Think about how the fact that young people nowadays are leaving the church in droves. Think of how divorce rates among church couples continues to rise with each passing year. Think of the prevalence of pornography in the church. Think of drunkenness, drug addiction. 
Think of suicide and depression and anxiety and how these disorders continue to increase in the church by leaps and bounds. Think about how homosexuality and transgenderism and sexual promiscuity have also gotten a foothold in the church. And, you know, we don't need, this isn't even to mention things like greed and corruption and abuse or arguing and fighting over secondary issues. There's a lot of issues that face the church today. Maybe also think about the fact that, wow, look at our culture. There's so many people rejecting Christ and, and there's so many unbelievers in our midst. Don't we want to see the lost converted? How can we turn, turn around um, the cause of the gospel in America? As we think about all these things, what message, what teaching, what is going to be most effective to address these things and correct these things and heal the issues that we face? What's really going to make an impact? Given all the crucial issues facing the church today, given all the unbelief around us, would we really say, yeah, we need to spend more time talking about the cross? Doesn't everybody know about the cross? Shouldn't we rather be focusing more on sexual ethics? Or how to have healthy marriages? Or how to raise godly children? Or how to evangelize the lost? Or how to find true uh, fulfillment and peace in life? Or rather, this is where the, this passage comes into play. This is where the wisdom and power of God come into play as well. And we need to ask and answer the questions, what is it that leads to the conversion of unbelievers? What is it that leads to the growth and sanctification and holiness of believers? Is it the power of man or is it the power and wisdom of God? On top of this, where is this power and wisdom of God made effectual? How is it unleashed upon the world? These are all questions that we find a very emphatic answer to right here in this passage. And Paul runs back and puts all the focus once again on the preaching of the cross. The simple message of Christ and Him crucified may not measure up to our standards of what is most helpful and what is most effective to address the issues in the church today. And the message of the cross certainly may not be what we think is absolutely most attractive and appealing to reach the unbeliever. Brethren, it's our job as Christians... It's my job as a minister to give people the message of Christ and Him crucified, which is often the very thing that people don't want or think that they need. When you're faced with problems in your own life or you see problems in the church, is your default message, oh, I need more of Christ and Him crucified. Are you going to go buy a book on that particular topic? Or start a study on that particular topic? Or run to this thinker? Or run to this person? Or run to this website? Or this doctor? Paul is showing us what we need most. Paul is showing us 
through the power of, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what is most effective in unleashing the power and the wisdom of God in our lives and in our hearts and in our churches. That's what I want you to see from this passage this morning. Three simple points as we work through this. I want to demonstrate what I just argued. I want to prove it to you. Power and wisdom demanded. Power and wisdom denied. Power and wisdom displayed. That should be easy to remember. Demanded. Uh, power and wisdom demanded, denied, and displayed. Well, let's think first of how power and wisdom is demanded. And we, we see this in verse 22. Paul says, For Jews demand signs, and Greek, Greeks seek wisdom. What is truth? What is the purpose of life? Is there life after death? Can we know God and our Creator? Can we have fellowship with God, our Creator? Can we be reconciled to Him? What does it mean to flourish in life? How do we pursue flourishing in life? These are some of life's most pressing questions, and they're questions that we instinctively ask um, by nature. As Augustine said, God has put eternity in our hearts, right? But in answer to these, you know, these questions and similar type of questions, human nature typically responds in one or two ways. You know, what is truth and how do we know it? Well, Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greek seek wisdom. Here, Paul is kind of categorizing all, everyone under two basic types of people. All of humanity is grouped into one of these two categories. Our response to the ultimate questions in life and about God and in eternity are typically either to demand for a sign or to find wisdom. Well, to illustrate this, let's go back to the ancient world a little bit. The Jews ask for a sign. They demand a sign. We know this very clearly if we've read the Gospels. We see that um, when Jesus appeared and walked this earth, that he repeatedly was asked to show a sign to prove that he spoke to God, for, uh, spoke for God, to prove that he was the Messiah. Matthew twelve twenty eight. The scribes and the Pharisees said to Jesus, "Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you." And Jesus answered, "An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except." the sign of the prophet Jonah. The point here is that the Jews asking for a sign wasn't entirely out of place because God did give a sign, the sign of Jonah, the sign that Jesus rose from the dead. But it was their demand for a sign, and it was a demand for a sign of their liking and their choosing that Jesus condemns as evil. In fact, it's so condemned that Jesus says of the Jews in John chapter 4, unless you see signs and wonders, you will never believe. But here I want you to think, this Jewish request for a sign is really kind of still with us in our day. It's no different than many things we see around us. When you think about, give me a sign, what we're asking for ultimately, or what they're asking for, is a religious experience. Wow me. 
amaze me. Prove to me that your religion is true. Prove to me that, you know, this is what I need. Do some sort of supernatural work. Do some sort of miracle in order to prove to me that your God is real. To prove to me that you have truth. At the root of this is what has often been called a quest for an illegitimate religious experience. Think of how in Mormonism, you know, you ask them, well, how does Joseph Smith, how do you know that Joseph Smith is true? How do you know that, you know, your religion is true? They always point you back to the burning in the bosom. You're like, you'll have a burning in the bosom. There's this supernatural experience that is going to prove to you that our religion is true. It's a request for a sign. We can see this in our day even within the bounds of Christianity. Those who treat Christianity as chiefly an emotional or um, some sort of other experience that we have. That's the danger of those who feel most alive, the closest to God, when they're having um, tremendous emotional worship or experience of some sort. Those who feel closest to God out in nature as opposed to in the church. Those who treat their feelings and their experience and their emotions as the ground of their true faith, as the real important stuff of the Christian life. Some do this explicitly. They they reject the Scriptures entirely and the church, and it's just between them and God. Others do this implicitly with their day-to-day living. They live by the ups and downs of how they feel and what's going on in their life rather than by the objective truth of God's Word. This is the Jewish request for a sign. I don't want to ruin anybody's favorite hymn here, but I think it's perfectly encapsulated in the famous line, You ask me how I know He lives? He lives within my heart experience and feelings as the ground of truth. Brother, the problem is, when we see this, all we got to do is ask the question, who and what is at the heart of this experience? Me. I am. The individual. It is the isolated individual who on the basis of experience or feeling is now in charge of evaluating what is true and what isn't. I request a sign. God, prove to me that you are real because I'm the one who will weigh the evidence and decide for myself. I am the one who must feel or experience or be satisfied with whatever it is you're telling me Otherwise, it's no good to me. That's why Jesus said, it's evil to demand a sign because it's putting God to the test as if we stand over Him and evaluate Him as if what is true is only true if it meets our demands and criteria and expectations for what is true. Whatever it is that you're selling, 
Even if you claim to speak for God, I'll only accept it if it provides some real cash value to what I feel and to what I think. But if the illegitimate quest for religious experience is one ditch we can fall into, going full-fledged rational is the other area. And this is where the Greek seeking wisdom comes into play. Here, the Greeks were different than the Jews entirely. You want to talk to me about God and eternity and truth? Well, you better wow me intellectually and practically. And I think this perhaps has more in line with our sophisticated, rational, modern culture. Maybe we would look at it this way. I don't mean to stereotype anybody, but the more rural, conservative kind of uh, um, circles of our culture are going to be more of looking for an experience, while more, you know, the bougie, right, the, 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 the elites in the city are going to look for more wisdom and philosophy and wow me with something intellectually. But here the Greeks evaluated everything by asking questions like, is it beautiful? Is it honorable? Is it eloquent? Does it help us flourish in life? Is it really practical and life-changing? Will your truth, whatever it is that you're selling, will it lead uh, to a greater esteem? A greater success in life? Will it give me a greater mastery over life? And don't we see how this is prevalent everywhere in our day? Give me a religion that works? Give me something that will make my life better? Right? That will make my children better? That will fully satisfy me and fulfill me? It will heal my pain? It will answer my fears? It will calm my anxieties? It will give me the key to flourishing and living joyfully? Another branch of this would be, give, does your religion remedy social and political ills? I'm going to need more than just thoughts and prayers. I want to see action. I want to see change. What is the cash value of your truth in making a lasting impact on society? Does it make us all better? Brethren, this too places us at the center. This too is setting up man as a judge and evaluator of the truths of God. We determine if a religion or a truth is good or right based upon if we think it works, if it meets our criteria, if it answers our concerns, if it meets our standards of goodness and truth and beauty and helpfulness. We see these things all around us in our day. I mean, one real obvious example would be like the transgender movement. Not to, you know, pick low-hanging fruit here, but you think about the fact that like biological facts don't matter. It's whatever you feel. What do you feel is most true about you? Who are you deep down? The individual, ultimately, in this sense, is Lord and King over everything, even unchangeable facts. Of course, we see this as well on the other end, the self-help pragmatism. Truth is defined by what works, what meets our standards, what produces what we want, whether it's religion, whether it's psychology, whether it's medicine, whether it's science, whether it's politics, does it produce results? 
That's our quest for wisdom. So Paul is showing that by nature, everyone falls into one or both categories. We demand power, we demand wisdom when we are faced with the ultimate questions of life. But his message to us is that God does not cater to these things, to these human desires. He created us. He is Lord over us. We are indebted to Him. And although it's most natural to us, the Word of God comes and says emphatically, man is not the measure of all things. And as long as we live or believe or operate under that assumption, as long as we evaluate the Word of God or truth based upon what we think and what we want and what we demand, we actually are those in this verse who are perishing. This is power and wisdom demanded. But how does God respond? We've got to move quickly. Secondly, how does God respond to this demand for power and wisdom? Secondly, power and wisdom denied. Power and wisdom denied. Look at uh, verse 22 and 23. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Do you hear the blunt force trauma of these words? All of humanity wants either a sign or they want wisdom. But the very thing that the world wants, the very very thing that the world demands, the very thing that the world seeks, we give them the opposite. How's that for an evangelistic strategy? How's that for a church growth strategy? How effective is that going to be if we seek to love the city expecting them to love us back? We preach what offends, what disgusts, what assaults, what sickens, what revolts, what pushes them away. A stumbling block is something that provokes a negative or a rebellious reaction. Um, uh, A synonym would be scandal. It's scandalous. It brings outrage and shame. It's shocking. It's appalling. It's deplorable. It's disgusting. It's revolting. It produces nausea. That's that's the imagery here. Which is why one scholar translates this word as a death trap. The preaching of Christ crucified is a death trap to Jews. A death trap? We know, of course, that the Jews expected the Messiah to come with a power and glory and strength that God displayed over Pharaoh in the Exodus. Crushing his enemies, sweeping them away in a moment, humiliating them and showing them no mercy. That's what they expected. Not only that, but the book of Deuteronomy says that anyone who is hung on a tree is under a curse. Being under a curse is not a good thing in Jewish theology. That's shame. That's weakness. That's humiliation. That's that's being cut off. So to proclaim a Messiah who came in humility and weakness and was executed by Gentiles on a tree, that displayed uh, contradicted the deepest convictions 
of a good Old Testament Jew. You couldn't think of a message more revolting to the Jewish people than Christ crucified. It's blasphemy to them, as it still is to many of them in this day. To the Greeks, they valued honor, beauty, esteem, respect, success, rhetoric, upstanding, rational, very well put together, properly spoken, proper manners, proper dignity type of truth. We have a suffering servant who gave himself for others. They have no place for humility. We have a cross of shame, a Messiah who died to bring us to God, not to fix all of our problems here and now. We have a Messiah who died to take away our sin, not to affirm our inherent honor and esteem and self-will. That's why it's just plain stupid to the Greeks. Superstition. It's unhelpful. Those who believe it ought to be pitied. It merits a little more than an eye roll. I can't believe you believe that. How degrading. A God who couldn't overcome his enemies and he died at the hands of the human beings that he he himself created? It's not a God worthy of our love or adoration or trust. Not to mention the fact that both Jews and Greeks, anything less than self-salvation was dishonorable. Like, you got to do it yourself can't expect anybody to save you you're gonna have to do it yourself brethren again don't we see all these things still around us in our day we have people claiming that christianity is backwards and outdated and unhelpful it's patriarchal it's oppressive it's superstition it's cosmic child abuse it leads to depression and anxiety It crushes us under shame and guilt. It doesn't liberate. It creates more problems than it solves. Either that or just people, it's just boring. It's irrelevant. There's more important things in life and in practice. Brethren, this is the Word of God coming and saying to us, this is the only thing that will save. And this is the only thing that will satisfy, uh, sanctify sinners. Paul is saying, even if all the world rejects it, we are to preach Christ and Him crucified. Even if by our evaluation, none of the world seems to be changed by this message, we are to preach Christ and Him crucified. If all the world is offended by this message, we are to preach Christ and Him crucified. It doesn't matter that so many people think that it's foolish, that it's bad business. I mean, think about like, you know, in a consumeristic, market-driven society where, you know, a results-oriented economy, this doesn't make any sense. We're conditioned by the culture to try to make the gospel attractive and appealing in order to grow the church or love the city or make Christianity palatable. But God calls us to give the world the one thing that He says they don't want. But it's the only thing that will save them. The message of Christ in Him crucified. So power and wisdom demanded, and now power and wisdom denied. 
stumbling block and foolishness. Third and finally, let's bring this all together, power and wisdom displayed. Power and wisdom displayed. God does not cater to sinful man and give them what they demand. Instead, let's look at verse 23 and 25 through 25 again. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The key to this statement, and really, I think the key to the entire passage, entire chapter, I think it's really summed up in this little phrase, to those who are called. One reason I say this is because this is now the fourth time in this opening, uh, these first uh, 25 verses, that the Apostle Paul has mentioned this call. Verse 1, Paul was called to be an apostle by the will of God. He's saying, I didn't sign up for this. He called me. Verse uh, verse 2, the Corinthians themselves were called to be saints. Verse 9, they were also called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. And now, another reference to the call is mentioned here to us who are being called, or those who are called. And what he's saying is, what distinguishes those who are perishing from those who are being saved? What distinguishes those who believe that the cross is folly from those who see it as the wisdom and power of God? It all rests on this call of God. Wisdom and power and salvation all rest upon and depend upon God and upon God alone. Brethren, God is the one who takes initiative. God is the one who is pleased to save through the folly of what is preached. Verse 21. A called in this passage does not refer to those who have decided for themselves that the cross is worthy of acceptance. It is not for those who look at the cross and evaluate whether they think it's wisdom and power. It is not referred to those who have evaluated all the facts and chosen for themselves to follow Jesus. That fact overthrows the entire argument. The call refers to those whom God takes the initiative in saving them, predestining them for salvation, and in due time, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, calling them to faith through the Gospel. And this is why it's the key to the entire passage. Because if God only offered salvation to those who were sensitive enough to interpret the signs, or only to those who were intellectually gifted enough to determine wisdom, And salvation would be by works, not by grace. Paul's point is that God's power is on display through how through the preaching of this stumbling block, foolish message, new sinners are brought to life. It's amazing. 
It's confounding. It defies all rational or instinctive of, of explanation. Before the call, when we heard the gospel, before we heard the gospel, we were dead and enslaved to our sins, and we were defeated by sin, Satan, and the flesh. But now, a power of God is at work in us. We were ignorant of truth, of God, of judgment, of creation, of sin. But now, the wisdom of God is at work in us. Ultimately, we know, of course, that Jesus Christ is the power and wisdom of God. He is the wisdom in whom, uh, He is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That Jesus Himself is the manifestation of God's power. That He is the full revelation of God's wisdom. But here we see, brethren, that His power and His wisdom are made effectual in our world through the foolish and yet divine message of the cross. This is what puts God's power and wisdom on display. And this is why the Apostle Paul draws this to a conclusion by saying the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He's not saying that God is weak or that God is foolish. He's saying that what appears to us as foolishness is far wiser than what anything, any human being can conceive of. And what appears to us as weakness is far stronger and more powerful than anything else in creation. What God has done in Christ crucified and through the preaching of the Gospel is a direct contradiction to everything that we consider to be wise and powerful. And yet it has achieved far more than all the world's wisdom and power combined could ever produce. And brethren, this is really how I want us to conclude this morning. We began by thinking of how often we wish to help others. We want to help churches We want to solve the ills that we face in society, in our homes, and in our churches. We want to provide people with answers to life's most difficult questions and struggles. But I hope you see how the Word of God answers this for us. God tells us what we need to hear. It's not up to us to decide what is most helpful, what is most effective. God has made it clear. Preach Christ and Him crucified. That's all we really need. And that's all your neighbor needs. Whether you're talking about a believing neighbor or an unbelieving neighbor. Brethren, hear me this morning. When I say whatever is going on in your heart and life today, whatever is going on in your marriage or in your home, Whatever's going on in your workplace or among your friends, whatever is going on in your church, whatever you're struggling with, whatever questions you have, whatever frustrations you have, whatever fears you have, whatever anxieties you have, whatever sins you have, whatever sorrows that you have, you need the gospel. You need it today. 
You need it tomorrow. You need it every day because every question and every struggle comes back in some way to Christ and Him crucified. And even in your weakness, it is the power of God invading our world through the Gospel that is going to give you the strength that you need to overcome whatever it is that you're facing. And to those who are being saved, can't you bear witness to this? Doesn't experience even show this? That Christ crucified, that message produces in us power that is beyond our strength. It keeps you holding on when everything else says let go. It keeps you trusting God when everything else says to doubt Him. It keeps you repenting when all of your flesh says give yourself to this sin. This is what you need. Can't you bear witness to the fact as well that the wisdom of God produces godly living, produces flourishing unlike any other self-help philosophy or opinion of men? It makes us divinely wise. It makes us holy. It makes us righteous. It makes us blessed. And so the question before you today that I pose to you, will you receive by faith what God gives? Or do you think you need something more? Look, this world is full. Full of opinions and wisdom. It is full of counselors and voices. That whatever it is you're facing today, here's an answer to it. Here's medication for it. Here's therapy for it. Here's a political strategy for it. Here's a self-help principle for it. Here's an ancient, wise, old philosophy of system for it. The world is full of signs and wisdom that it offers to you. And they taste good. And they feel right. But God, as I frequently say, comes to release us from this prison that we think is a palace. As He tells us what we really need. And you know who accepts this message? Those who are humbled. Those who are broken. Those who have given up on self. Those who see the emptiness of this world. Those who've seen the greatness of God. Those who've seen the love of God. Christ in Him crucified is all we ever need. Brethren, this morning, I hope you've seen how the Lord gives you what you need. I hope you've seen and embraced by faith that our God taking on flesh and living and dying in your place is the answer not only to your greatest and most pressing needs, But it's the answer to everything else practically as well. And if you have this, you have everything. Brother, may God give us the grace to receive this by faith this morning. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.